Introduction Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew five sixteen through 19 The first sentence of this passage from the Sermon on the Mount is important. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This is Jesus' vision of the city on a hill. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Matthew five fourteen through 15 It is Jesus' confirmation of his people of Israel's original requirement. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither you go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Deuteronomy 4, 5-8 through what this passage reveals is that God's Bible-revealed law is a tool of international evangelism. This fact has been forgotten or ignored by Christians for well over three centuries. The city-on-a-hill concept has been redefined by Christians to apply only to personal ethics, family ethics, and church order. It is not supposed to have anything to do with social order. The modern church self-consciously denies what the Bible makes plain, namely, that biblical law is the only God-sanctioned means of bringing permanent social order. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. The Bible teaches this clearly, but modern man sticks his fingers in his ears. He refuses to listen. To admit this would be to admit that the works of his own hands cannot save his soul, heal his institutions, or bring lasting social peace. This deafness is a sign of God's wrath. He has made modern man judicially blind and deaf, just as he did with the Jews of Jesus' day. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Matthew thirteen fifteen. This was Isaiah's warning too, Isaiah 6, 9-10. through 10. Jesus then told his disciples that they were not numbered among those who were judicially blind. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Matthew thirteen sixteen. In our day, however, this blessing has been withdrawn, at least with respect to the church's understanding of, and respect for, God's revealed law. God has given the church over to its sins. The vast majority of God's people today have self-consciously adopted the same view of biblical law that is held by the covenant breakers. They have abandoned the heritage of the Calvinist Protestant Reformers and the Puritans, who held the civil laws of the Old Testament in high regard, a fact that has been written out of the history books, including most of the specialized monographs written by church historians. 
Ideas have consequences. The American church has been swept by a series of front-page scandals, the mere tip of the iceberg. The pagan world howls with delight. By honoring God's law, Christians evangelize. By self-consciously disobeying it, they de-evangelize. As Nathan reminded David, How be it, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. 2 Samuel 12.14 There are negative sanctions built into God's covenant order. If men will not enforce them, God will. This is how God evangelizes. To which the evangelical church responds, Mean God, harsh God, naughty, naughty, go to your room. A Harsh God The position defended by Christian Reconstruction affirms the continuing validity of Old Testament civil laws, including especially the law's negative sanctions in the New Testament era. Because of this, Christian Reconstruction has been dismissed as a deviant theology, especially by dispensationalists. The Reconstructionist position on the law is frequently described by its critics as being overly harsh. This accusation that our position is judicially harsh rests on a specific, though unstated, view of the God of the Old Covenant, namely, that God's required civil system in the Old Testament era was itself judicially harsh. But fortunately for us, Jesus has abolished it, or at least drastically softened its harsh aspects. Jesus, in other words, is meek and mild, but his Father in heaven is mean and harsh. Fortunately for us, we are assured, Jesus has persuaded his Father to change his mind about the penalties of the law. God the Father insisted on civil justice. Fortunately for us, Jesus insists only on love. No creed but the Bible, no law but love, has been the battle cry of fundamentalist antinomians throughout the 20th century. It is not only the fundamentalists who have been promoters of this antinomian view of God's law and sanctions in history. It has been the whole church, with the exception of the Calvinist Protestant reformers. William Tyndale is a good example, but so are Bucer and Calvin and the 17th century Puritans. They alone were willing to affirm a positive view of Old Testament law. Since then, it has been all downhill. From the Newtonian Revolution, Newton, it should be noted, was in private a dedicated alchemist and an anti-Trinitarian mystic. Through natural law theory and Scottish common-sense rationalism to modern neo-orthodoxy and neo-evangelicalism, God's people have hated his law. In response, he has steadily removed them from power and influence for the last three centuries. Historical Judgments and the Final Judgment Christians today hate the idea that God holds individuals personally responsible for obeying his revealed law, and so they also deny that God holds society collectively responsible for obeying his law. They deny the possibility of the following. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 8, 19-20 Such preliminary historical negative judgments are intended by God to remind man of his final judgment at the end of history. Covenant-breaking man hates the thought of the latter, so he denies the possibility of the former. Things happen randomly, not covenantally, he prefers to believe. In preference to a belief in the final judgment, 
self-proclaimed autonomous man will believe in the sovereignty of anything else from creeping things, Romans 1, 22-23, to impersonal random forces that produce creeping things out of lifeless chemicals, Darwinism. He much prefers to believe in the cosmic death of the universe rather than the eternal resurrection of all men, some to eternal joy in the presence of God, and the rest to God's eternal torturing. The doctrine of final judgment affects every other theological doctrine. Although modern theologians in all camps are almost perversely unwilling to admit this possibility even or even debate it, it also affects social theory, which social theorists have been equally unwilling to discuss. There could be no society without a doctrine of final judgment. This doctrine is an inescapable concept. The question is never, final judgment or no final judgment. The question is, who will administer this final judgment? There are also two secondary questions. Who speaks representatively in history for this judge? Who administers his preliminary representative judgments? Humanist man's God is man himself, especially collective mankind, who is supposedly incarnate in the state. Crimes against individuals are understood by humanists as essentially crimes against mankind, which in turn are perceived as crimes against the state. We hear the phrase, He has paid his debt to society. After some murderer or brutal thief has spent three or four years in jail. But what about his victim and the victim's heirs? What has he paid to them? Nothing. Similarly, we read editorials about some foreign nation's crimes against humanity. When we examine these crimes more carefully, they turn out to be crimes against the liberals' vision of the messianic state. Crimes committed by this or that foreign dictator who is, one, perceived as not being a liberal a socialist or a communist, and two, who also has lost a major war or has recently been deposed. But what about specific penalties for specific crimes against specific victims? What about a system of restitution that helps both victim and criminal to recover? Silence. Why? Because such specifics point too clearly to the idea of God's final judgment and covenant-breaking man's desperate need for someone to make adequate restitution for him. This, above all, is what covenant-breaking man does not want to think about, because he refuses to acknowledge the restitution payment offered to God in his behalf. He denies that God will ever impose negative sanctions in the next world, surely, and therefore in this world, too. Destroying Social Order as the intellectual's concern about crimes against humanity has increased, their concern about crimes against God has decreased. We seldom hear discussions of crimes against the very fabric of communal life. One exception to this rule is Harvard University's political scientist James Q. Wilson. Quote, Predatory crime does not merely victimize individuals. It impedes and, in the extreme case, even prevents the formation and maintenance of community. By disrupting the delicate nexus of ties, formal and informal, by which we are linked with our neighbors, crime atomizes society and makes of its members mere individual calculators, estimating their own advantage, especially their own chances for survival amidst their fellows. End quote. The Old Testament's law order, when enforced by the judges, overcame these criminal tendencies toward social atomization. Old Testament criminal law was designed by God to protect the community by defending the rights of innocent victims. Today, we have seen the rise of the Messianic State, whose self-appointed task is to heal society through a program of salvation 
by legislation. Humanism substitutes the concept of salvation by man's law for salvation by God's grace. It also substitutes its own sanctions for the Bible's sanctions. It promises to redeem, rehabilitate criminals, but then neglects to defend their victims. Until quite recently, it focused exclusively on rehabilitation rather than restitution, not understanding that without restitution, there can be no rehabilitation, socially or psychologically. Without Jesus Christ's restitution payment to God for the sins of man, there could never have been rehabilitation cosmically, for even with it, the whole world came under a curse. Genesis 3.18 Society's institutions of justice are supposed to reflect the judicial terms of this cosmic redemption. When they do not, we can confidently expect God's historical negative sanctions to reform the institutions. Deuteronomy 28.15-68 The Negative Function of Biblical Civil Law The function of civil law, according to the Bible, is not to save men's souls, but to restrain their evil public behavior. Biblical law points to God and His judgment, and so can become a means of special saving grace, Romans 7, 7-12. But the function of all biblical civil law is negative, not positive. Biblical civil law imposes negative sanctions only. It denies the presupposition that man can be saved by law, let alone by legislation. The builders of the modern messianic state have forgotten this, and as a result, we are now engulfed in wave after wave of tyrannical legislation. The never-ending quest to redeem man by remaking his social and economic environment. We are also engulfed in wave after wave of crime with only the demographics of an aging population serving as a mitigating factor in the industrialized West. A high percentage of crimes are committed by unmarried young men. What is needed is a return to a legal order that treats all men as responsible moral agents responsible primarily before God and secondarily before other men. The state should treat criminals as deviants who must be restrained by force and victims as people with legal rights that must be defended. Biblical law rests on this view of man. Sanctions, an inescapable concept. Undergirding every social order, there is a deeply religious view of what constitutes the good society. Behind every view of the good society, there is a concept of the bad society, and every society rests on the proposition that negative sanctions must be brought against those whose acts threaten the good society and promote the bad society. It is therefore impossible to conceive of a society without sanctions. It is equally impossible to speak of the state as an agency of society without speaking of legitimate sanctions. Sanctions are inescapable social concepts. It is never a question of sanctions versus no sanctions. It is always a question of which sanctions. This leads us to an important conclusion. Any attempt to deny the legitimacy of the sanctions specified in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is necessarily an attempt to substitute a, a different set of sanctions. This leads to another conclusion, one which has been vigorously denied by Protestant Christians for at least three centuries and by other Christians since the 2nd century A.D. Any attempt to substitute civil sanctions different from those required by the Bible is necessarily also an attempt to establish or defend an anti-Christian civil order, meaning an anti-Christian society. This is another way of saying that there is no neutrality, not in philosophy, religion, or social theory. 
There is no social order that can be accurately described as neutral with respect to the claims of Jesus Christ. And the claims of Christ mean the laws of Christ governing every area of life. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14.15 Jesus also said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Matthew 12.30 By systematically applying this inescapable biblical principle of non-neutrality in several areas of social theory and policy, and by presenting Bible-based evidence for it, verse by verse, the Christian Reconstructionists have earned the hostility of American humanism, conservatism, fundamentalism, traditional Pentecostalism, conservative Lutheranism, Calvinistic Presbyterianism, and neo-evangelicalism. Other groups would be equally outraged, except they have yet to hear about us. The New Schizophrenia If the critics are correct, then this book will reveal just how far Christian Reconstructionists are from the truth, and how close the humanists are to the truth. Either the Word of God establishes the judicial standards for society, or else the Word of Man does. There is no third position. This is the reason why those Christians who insist that the Christian Reconstructionists are wrong about the legitimacy of biblical civil law are so frequently, for example, always, found to be supporters of this or that humanist social program, baptizing it in the name of Christianity. They have no exclusively Bible-based alternatives, no uniquely Christian third way. They are in the difficult position of trying to fight the deeply political religion of humanism without appealing to biblical law, and trying to refute Christian reconstruction without becoming mouthpieces for humanism. They want to be regarded as Christian social commentators, not just social commentators who happen to be Christians. Yet they categorically refuse to accept as judicially binding any biblical book that appears in the canon of Scripture before the Gospel of Matthew. Since 1980, more and more conservative Christians have been speaking out on social issues. This used to be a near monopoly of social gospel liberals and neo-evangelical not-yet-completely liberals. Conservative evangelicals are even writing whole books on social issues. Francis Schaeffer's later books seem to have legitimized such publishing efforts within conservative evangelicalism. Like Schaeffer's books, these recent books are very peculiar intellectual exercises. They adopt an odd outline, a no-biblical-law chapter, followed by a Christian-relevance chapter, followed by a no-biblical-law chapter, etc. Schaeffer used something very similar to this approach in a Christian manifesto, 1981. Charles Colson's Kingdoms in Conflict, 1987, develops this approach into a fine art. So does Carl Henry's Twilight of a Great Civilization, 1988. Reading these published defenses of an unspecific middle position is like imagining a single flea-footed man playing a lonely game of table tennis. He serves, wham, no Old Testament law. Then there is a frantic rush to get to the other side of the table to return the shot. Wham! Uniquely Christian social relevance. The ball goes faster and faster, back and forth, until the man at last drops from exhaustion. The outcome of the game is resolved only by the unwillingness or inability of the player to continue. It has nothing to do with the strength of either position. The astounding thing is that each author seems utterly oblivious to the fact that he is playing both sides of the table. Each time he hits the ball, he acts as though he expects someone else on the other side to return it. It is as if the author writes two separate manuscripts, one 
pro-biblical law, and one against, as a kind of academic exercise, and then some inebriated editor mistakenly assembles them into a single volume. Amazingly, these books sell, and the reviewers seem blissfully unaware of the intellectual schizophrenia they are reviewing. I suspect that they are suffering from the same bizarre affliction. Conclusion There is today a near-universal agreement within the Christian community that the case laws of the Old Testament do not and should not apply to today's societies. We are assured that there are no biblical blueprints for secular social institutions. This position is generally defended in the name of religious pluralism. It has been the dominant political idea within even the most conservative Christian circles in America for well over a century. Is this position true? It rests squarely on the concept of religious neutrality in social theory. Can it be true if the Bible is true? It is the reader's moral responsibility to determine for himself which approach seems the most biblical in the search for appropriate civil sanctions. 1. Going to the Bible. 2. Going to Harvard University and the Harvard Law School or one of their humanist accredited clones. 3. Going to the Chamber of Commerce. There are millions of professionally naive Christians today who insist that they are not doing the second or third just because they refuse to do the first. They are self-deceived.